Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Well, church, welcome back to the book of Philippians, which we began last week. And I know some of you are here and and fighting a battle this morning. And uh, you just need to be reminded that in Christ, we've already won. We will be with him again. I'm looking forward to that day. You looking forward to that day? (laughs) Phew. It's going to be a glorious, awesome day that will never end. And it's going to be easier right? We're just going to be with Jesus. Hallelujah. Um, Jesus is the easy button, but from now until we get there, it's not always easy, but one day it's going to be great. Uh, so back in Philippians is where we find ourselves. We're going to cover uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. So if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and make your way to Philippians. It's an epistle in the New Testament. Um, GE Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Uh, is how you get there if you're kind of wandering around looking for it. Philippians chapter 1. And as we return to this letter, we're returning to a letter of thanks and of friendship and of encouragement or exhortation. It's a, it's a letter that Paul writes from prison to the church at Philippi. Paul has received a financial gift from the church at Philippi, a gift for which he's thankful to God and therefore writes this letter, but he's also received a report of some challenges in the church. There's both external opposition that the church is facing and apparently some brewing internal discord. So immediately after Paul writes the greeting that we covered last week in verses 1 and 2, he's now going to report on his prayers for the church. His upcoming instructions that we're going to read later in the letter are going to flow from the heart of someone he wants them to know, someone who who prays for them. He's not just giving them instructions that are cold, dead instructions on a page. They're flowing out of a heart uh, of prayerful love for them. And he prays, as we're going to see, with the priorities of the gospel and of eternity in mind. He prays as one who loves them and longs for them to work through their challenges and flourish For the glory of God. Our prayers, church, reveal much about our priorities, do they not? What we pray about is is what we care about. We can learn much from Paul and his prayers. First, Paul prays for local churches. Prays for the church. Second, when he prays, he prays about the gospel and God's work in people. His prayers reveal a man whose thinking is permeated with a joy-filled love for the whole church and an unwavering commitment to the gospel. We see that in verses 3 through 8 in the report of his prayers. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord as we consider Paul's prayers of thanks or thanksgiving? Paul writes this, beginning in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers of me, with me, of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, our Father in heaven, we ask that you would allow us to be so attuned to the presence of your Spirit that we would learn from you. God, that we would learn how better to magnify and glorify Christ in the hearing of this word and that the Spirit would be see fit, God, that, that he would see fit to apply this word to our hearts such that we leave uh, better equipped to magnify Christ in our lives and in this body. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the, in the English language, which is the language we just read this in, in case you were confused about that. Um, in the English language, we just read four sentences. But in the Greek, what we just read is actually one long sentence. Why do you have a pastor teacher? Because of the Apostle Paul, right? Because the guy wrote really long sentences a lot of times, and it it takes some work sometimes to understand Paul. So this is just one sentence. Verses 3 through 8 in Greek is one really long sentence. And if you remember from high school days, sentence diagramming, you got to find the main verb, right? So the main verb in this long sentence is the word thank. I thank my God. All right, that's the big idea. He's reporting to the church at Philippi about his prayers, and his prayers, first off, are prayers of thanksgiving. I thank my God. This is the big idea, and everything else that we read in this long sentence is sort of supporting or explaining his thankfulness to God. Now, let's not forget, Paul is writing from prison to a church that sent him a gift that is also facing outward pressure for their faith in Christ and an internal sort of brewing discord that's kind of like, it hasn't spilled over into craziness, but it's, it's starting and it needs to sort of like Barney Fife just nip it in the butt, all right? So that's, that's the context that Paul is writing into, and he starts out by saying, I thank God for you. I'm so thankful to God for you. Isn't that a good place to start when you think about other believers and sisters in Christ? Even when there's stuff going on, I thank God for you. Look at verses 3 and 4. He thanks God for the Philippians consistently and comprehensively. When I read those verses, you probably saw the word all a lot. I I thank my God for you all. That's redundant in the Greek. In, In the Greek, they have the second person pronoun in, the, in uh, the singular and in the plural. And what do we say in the second person singular in English in the plural? We say y'all, right? In, in your Bibles, both are translated you, right? If I'm talking to my wife, I say I love you, singular. If I'm talking to all y'all, I say I love y'all. Paul's writing to y'all. I love y'all, but instead of just saying I love y'all, he says I love all y'all. <laughs> and he does it four times in this passage, and then he talks about every prayer and always. Like, I, I love every single one of you despite the stuff that's going on. 
that we're going to have to talk about, I thank God for all y'all. I do it in every prayer. I do it consistently. He's always, verse 4, in every prayer, verse 4, giving thanks for them. He, he prays about them, and when he prays about them, he starts with thanks. Despite the challenges, despite the stuff, he keeps on praying for the church with thanksgiving. He planted this church. God sent him to this church. And if anybody has a reason to be grumpy with this church, like, what is wrong with y'all? Get it together. But he doesn't let the discord take him from thankful to grumpy. And that, that's a challenge to me as a pastor. Just keep thanking God for all y'all, no matter what. G.K. Chesterton once said, Gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Paul never loses the wonder of being used by God in Philippi and being connected to the church there. In Paul's prayers, we rarely see him thanking God for stuff, for things. But we often see him thanking God for people. Even people with problems or who are causing problems. Despite their issues and despite his distance and despite his imprisonment, Paul thanks God for the church at Philippi. And I believe Marita and Chan have it right when they say, many problems in the church today would disappear if we genuinely prayed for one another. That God has given us to one another to live for his glory is a gift for which we are to offer him thanks. It's a gift for which we ought to regularly give him thanks. Notice that Paul says, I thank my God. Did you know that the God can be your God through faith in Jesus Christ, that God is personal? I thank my God, and he's personal not just to you, but to every one of us, and then he makes us a family together, and he brings us into this belonging, and it's a gift from God that Paul is thankful for. Note that Paul's prayers are, as I mentioned earlier, for you all. That's the entire church. Even the women that he's going to name in chapter 4 who are having a little spat and they need to get it together, he's thankful for them. Four times in this one long sentence spanning six verses, Paul is praying about everyone, he tells us. Paul is, of course, thankful for individual believers, but he specifically gives thanks to, all, for, to God for all of them together. And why is that important? Because we live in a, in a world that so focuses on our personal relationship with Jesus, we forget that if God saved you personally, he saved you into a body. He saved you corporately as well. Indeed, if you think you can love Jesus and belong to him personally and have no regard for a local church, that might be an indication that you don't know him personally at all. God saved you into a family to be with all y'all. This mindset of togetherness is going to be foundational later. It's going to be important later when Paul calls for the church to demonstrate selflessness in pursuing a greater unity than the individual self, the unity that they need in the gospel advance. This unity flows from, as we see in Paul, a spirit-given thankfulness to God for the whole church. And as we will see, from God-initiated partnerships in the gospel. But before we see that, I want, to, I want to be sure we pick up a little word in verse 4. Verse, verse 4, not foy. Verse 4. I, th I thank my God for all y'all with joy. Right? It's, it's one thing to thank God because we have to. Check. 
It's another thing to thank God with joy, is it not? I thank my God for all y'all with joy. Philippians has been called the epistle of joy because the words joy and rejoice occur so frequently in this letter. Paul rejoices that Christ is proclaimed, chapter 118. He wants to keep on living for the Philippians' joy in the faith, Philippians 1.25. He asks the Philippians to complete his joy, chapter 2, verse 2. He is glad and rejoices with the Philippians Chapter 2, 17 and 18, he sends Epaphroditus back to them that they might rejoice. Chapter 2, verse 28, he tells the Philippians to receive Epaphroditus with joy. Chapter 2, verse 29, three times he tells the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 4, where he does it two times. He rejoiced in the Lord at the Philippians' concern for him. Chapter 4, verse 10, and he tells the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 1, that they are his joy. Joy is gladness. It's cheerfulness. It's a, even a calm delight. It's an inner satisfaction that comes from being joined to God and to his people through the selfless sacrifice of Jesus. You've probably heard it said that joy means Jesus others yourself. So it's a pretty good breakdown of joy. Marita says this, Paul, though in prison, has joy because the glory of Jesus and the needs of the church occupy his heart and mind. He's able to get outside of the prison cell because he's connected with people 900 miles away who are partners in the gospel. Paul's going to tell us he's learned to be content in Christ no matter what his circumstances in chapter 4. So often, don't we, we we think that when our circumstances improve, then our joy will grow. Anybody else fall into that trap? Man, I'll be joy if this happens, if this happens, if I get this in my 401k, if I get this promotion, if I get this house, if this happens in the economy, if this kid gets straightened out, if, 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 then I'll have joy, then I'll have joy. And Paul says, I got joy right now, hanging out in prison. Tom Brady, after he won his third Super Bowl, asked this question. Is this all that there is? Three-time Super Bowl champion. Went on to win some more, so it wasn't quite all that there was. But now he's no longer playing football. He's retired, and just like the rest of us, he's getting old. That's a good question. Is this all that there is? Aren't you so thankful that there's more than momentary conquest on a football field or wherever else conquest is had? Aren't you glad that God has brought you into eternal union with himself through the sacrifice of Jesus? Aren't you thankful that you can be a part of his people who will endure forever? That he's placed us into a victory that will matter for all eternity? I mean, 50 years from now, who's going to be talking about Tom Brady? Virtually no one. Right? There'll be a few like football eggheads who are like, I remember Tom Brady. Right? But 50 years from now, virtually no one's going to know or care about Tom Brady. 150 years from now, you can guarantee no one is going to be talking about Tom Brady. There's going to be like three people, right? The, the NFL history buffs. But forever and always, you have been brought into a victory that will matter forever. And that ought to give you joy. Do, do you have Christian joy? Let's, let's get real this morning. Is that okay? 
you got to fight for joy. Because we're in a battle. Francis Schaeffer, one of the best Christian minds of the last century, once wrote this. In our day, life is such that while Christians do many things to serve the Lord, it is obvious from our faces and our conversations that few enjoy Him. Schaefer, profound scholar and theologian and apologist, experienced a season of doubt and depression that was finally overcome in his life, not by new information, but by fresh desperation for Jesus, that led to joy in Jesus. That's the paradox of the Christian life. Those who are most desperate will be most joyful. Those who most long to know and crave and belong to Christ and come to the end of themselves, that's where they find joy. Perhaps you're here this morning, you say, man, I I need joy. I'm in the prison and I've been looking to find joy by getting to the palace rather than spending time in his presence. You want joy, you got to be desperate for the presence of God. Joy comes in a relationship with King Jesus and his people. Time in the Word, and as we see in Paul's life, prayer that is focused on Jesus and the advance of the gospel and the health of the church. Joy comes through communion with Jesus where we call on Him to shine through our lives, even in the moments of our temptation and anger and doubt and despair. It is known when we confess our sins to one another and we forgive one another. It comes to those who treasure Jesus more than comfort or stuff as the Philippians did when they sent a gift even in their adversity, to Paul. You see, the irony of the Christian joy is that it's found among those who crave Jesus, by those who are compelled by the advance, not of their own agenda, but by the advance of the gospel. Paul has joy in prison because Jesus is with him and he's still connected to and vested in the health of other people. Christians. You can't have Christian joy and be disconnected from other Christians. You say, well, Paul's disconnected from other Christians. He is, but he isn't. He's in prison, but there are Christians attending to him, and he's praying for the churches that he's founded. As we see in verse 5, he's a partner with other Christians who are joined to Jesus and his mission, and, and Paul is thankful for that. He says he's thankful. Why? Verse 5, because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul thanks God. Why? Because of the Philippians' enduring partnership in the gospel. Why are we thankful to God? Because we have a mission to be a part of with other people. Paul is joyously thankful because he has partners in this work. Partners who have contributed to help make the work possible. The word partnership there in verse 5 is the word koinonia. It's the Greek word koinonia. It means, what does the word koinonia mean? Anybody remember? It means fellowship. And y'all thought fellowship were like potlucks, right? <laughs> so, so Paul says, I thank God for your fellowship or your partnership in the gospel. Paul and the Philippians are hundreds of miles apart, and he thanks them for the fellowship they have in the gospel. They cannot have potlucks, but they can have fellowship. How is this possible? It is possible because Christian fellowship does not come from deep fried chicken, 
but from a deep and unifying desire to see Christ magnified and the gospel advancing deep into our lives and out into our church and into the watching world. You say, is is the pastor against deep fried chicken? No, sir. But chicken doesn't create fellowship. The gospel creates fellowship. I love what D.A. Carson says about biblical fellowship. He says the heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. It's not everybody going off and doing their own thing in their own way. It is getting aligned under Christ for the sake of the gospel. Paul has joy in his relationships with the Philippians. He treasures their common participation in Jesus and his mission. Why do you need the church, dear Christian? One reason is that God saved you to be in gospel-driven fellowship and partnership with other Christians. He saved you to live out his mission and be refreshed by sacrificial partnership. Why? Because it models what Jesus has done. It serves as a part of the witness to Christ that God then uses to save others. Sacrificing for the sake of our partnership in the gospel fuels the advance of the mission in us and around us, and these relationships bring joy. And in these relationships, what unites us is Christ and the good news of the gospel. Is it not the gospel that brought a wealthy merchant and a slave girl and a working class jailer together in Philippi, along with, when we get to chapter 4, a man named Clement, which means he was probably a Roman. So we've got Lydia, likely an Asian, two Greeks, and a Roman all together in the church at Philippi. So we got Greeks and Romans and Asians, slaves and middle class and well-to-do, and they are all partners in the gospel From when? Verse 5. Do you see it? From the first day until now. Isn't that amazing news? Don't, Don't miss the from the first day. From the moment that Jesus changes your heart and brings you into his family, you are a partner in the gospel. Yes, you need to learn and to grow and to be sanctified like everyone else, but you don't have to wait to give or to serve or to tell others about Jesus. You don't have to wait to sacrifice for the good of the mission and know the joy that God supplies in being on a gospel team. It's kind of like being parents, right? If, if you wait until you're ready to have kids, guess what you're never going to have? Kids. Well, we've got to have a house with this many square feet and this many bedrooms, this many bathrooms. It's got to be perfect. Well, good luck with that, right? Same thing in the Christian life. If you wait until you have every answer to every possible question about the gospel to tell somebody about Jesus, you're never going to share Jesus. If you wait till you feel like you have enough money to become a generous giver, you're never going to become a generous giver. If you wait till you have time to read the Bible and pray, you're never going to read the Bible and pray. You don't have time for these things you got plenty of things to crowd that out and convince you that you'll put off till tomorrow what should be done today. But these Philippians were partners in the gospel from the first day. Jesus so changed them, they're like, i got to tell somebody about Jesus. Jesus so changed them, they're like, i gotta, I got to support this mission. We talked last week in the introduction. Every time there was an offering, the Philippians were like, sign me up for that. 
Paul in 2 Corinthians is like, I don't want you to give. You don't have anything. And they're like, we're giving. You're not going to tell me I'm not giving. I'm going to give out of my poverty. And then I don't even know how you do this. But Paul's like, they didn't just give according to their means. They gave beyond their means. They gave more than they could give. And they gave it somehow. From the first day until now, they were all in on the gospel. You want to have Christian joy? Live like that. It's like the parents who are like, we're never going to have a, ch- a child until we're, until we're ready. And then, lo and behold, mom is great with child even though they weren't ready. Something happened. And they went to the hospital nine months later and they're holding that little bundle of joy. And suddenly, their readiness just doesn't matter. It's like that in the Christian life. Just go all in and watch the joy that God will give. And once you get started, be like the Philippians. Don't stop from the first day until now. Keep on keeping out on. Despite challenges in the church, their partnership in the gospel expresses a gift for Paul. It didn't stop. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, on page 27 of his book, Life Together, says that it's the difficulty we face, the warning that we need to face is that we would become disillusioned when the church falls short of what it should be or what we think it should be, and then we bail out. And rather, in those moments, what we, what we should do is keep noticing our own faults. We should resist the impulse to stop praying and serving and giving and to give up. Instead, God wants us to keep going and sharing and praying and serving and sacrificing with confidence, not in ourselves, But who? But in God, verse 6, which brings us to the fourth reason or the fourth aspect of Paul's thankfulness. Paul thanks God because God will finish the good work he's begun in the church at Philippi. Paul is thankful because in spite of the issues, God's going to do what God's going to do. Paul's been careful to let the Philippians know that he thanks God for them. He's not thanking them, per se, but, but God. What they have done is not because of who they are, how great they are. It's because of what God has done in them. And in verse 5, he says he's thankful because of their gospel partnership. And, and you can almost read between the lines here. Maybe Paul's a little nervous that now that he said, I thank God because of your partnership in the gospel, maybe the Philippians are going to get the big head. Maybe they're going to get arrogant. Maybe they're going to think Paul has ignored or is unconcerned about the external opposition they're facing or the internal discord that's brewing. And then, boom, we get verse 6. And and Paul says, look, my confidence, just be sure you understand, Philippi, my confidence is not in you. No, it's in God who's at work in you. Silva says this, don't misunderstand my commendation, Philippi. It was not you who began this work, but God, and God will surely complete it. God began the work of salvation where the Philippians received new life in the gospel and were enlisted as partners in the gospel, and God will finish what he starts. God's work is ultimately about his son and what he's done, and if we'll keep this in mind, keep in mind whose work it is, it will help us remain united, and it will give us confidence even in the season's When we seem to get in our own way. Paul is thankful not because conditions are perfect in Philippi. 
but because of who God is and what he's done and what he will do. God changed their hearts. He joined them together in the gospel, and he didn't do it for them to start fast and then flame out. He will keep on completing his work of saving his people into gospel partnership until the day of Christ Jesus. God's saving work in us individually makes us partners for Jesus in community. And his work of refining us and shaping us and completing us through these gospel partnerships will not stop until he returns. So though the Philippians are faced with challenges, it is not time to abandon the gospel or one another. Are you facing any challenges this morning? Probably at least one. Some of you could list dozens. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Don't stop because of the adversity. Don't stop because of the challenge. It's time to trust the God who began his work of salvation in you, to trust that he will continue to complete it as you navigate life together with other Christians on your journey to beholding King Jesus. When we understand salvation and gospel partnership is the work of God, that he starts the work, that he does the work, that he perfects the work, it will inspire us to press on together with confidence even in tough seasons. And Paul believes this, not just a little bit, right? You ever said something and you're not so sure you really believe it? But I love how Paul begins in verse 6. I am sure of this, literally having been persuaded of this. In other words, it's a fixed disposition in his mind and heart. I am convinced that this is true, and I cannot be unconvinced of it. He has a fixed and unshakable confidence in God. He saw the start of the church at Philippi with his own eyes, And as we're going to see in verse 8, he knows the love that he has for them is not just his own love, but it's a supernatural Christ-given love for them. And where does a supernatural Christ-given love come from? It comes from God. And if God has put this love in his heart for them, then God's clearly going to complete what he started. It is God's saving work in and among them from the start, and God will complete it. The word complete there is the word to finish or to perfect something. I've used this illustration in the past. It's like when you, when you finish a piece of furniture and you use sandpaper to get the varnish on there. You know what you do? You, you start off and you've got to get everything that was on there off that was nasty. And you've got to get it real smooth. And you've got to go from the coarse to the medium to the fine to the super fine. And then you start putting the lacquer on there, right? And then you've got to sand it with the fine grit and put more lacquer until you get this just really perfect finish on that piece of furniture that's that's the image of what God is doing in the church it's the image of what God's doing in the believer he's continually refining us until when until the day of Christ Jesus Jesus accomplished everything that was necessary for our salvation and now the spirit initiates and sustains and completes his saving work in his people until he comes y'all still here all right so far We're getting there, I promise. We're almost home. So far, we've seen that Paul gives thanks continually for the people at Philippi. He gives thanks comprehensively and with joy. Why joy? Because he has real partners in the gospel. And he has absolute confidence that God will complete the work. But what about the Philippians themselves? Like, 
Is this all about sort of the partnership of transaction? Or is there a soul connection that Paul has with the people at Philippi? You understand what I'm saying? Is this, is this just a, an academic exercise for Paul? Or does he actually love people? And I love what we see in verse 7 and 8. This, this letter and everything that's in it, the good and the challenging that we're going to encounter together, it comes from a man who is passionate, not just about gospel partnerships in the theoretical, theological realm, but he's also passionate for all his gospel partners. He actually loves the Philippians. Which brings us to our final point. Paul's thankfulness to God for the Philippians is fueled by his and Christ's intense affection for them. God brought you into a church to love the church deeply and to be loved by the church deeply. In verse 7, Paul begins, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. The word feel is actually, strangely, the word to think or to have a particular mindset. Paul will use this same word later in the letter to urge the church to be of the same mind, chapter 2, verse 2, or to think in the same way that he thinks about growing in spiritual maturity, chapter 3, verse 15. It's a mindset. Have this mindset. It's right for me to have this mindset about all y'all because I hold you in my heart. He can't separate his heart and his head. They're they're connected. It's okay for him to be moved in the center of his being for the Philippians. Feed writes this, the heart is the deepest center of human consciousness, the seat of both the will and decision-making, as well as the emotions. Paul's letter is anchored not only in sound theology, but also in deep love for the Philippians. And by implication, he is urging the church to let love, not any love, the love of Christ that has shined forth in them and now shines forth through them, to let this love win the day in Philippi. Paul holds all the Philippians in his heart because they are all partakers of him with grace. The word partaker here is the same word that we said was partner in verse 5 with just a preposition put on the front of it. So it's a together partner or a together fellowshipper. All right? So All the church at Philippi are partakers of him, with him rather, of grace. They're all partners in this together. There's not some other grace for other people. It's one grace. It's the grace that God has given that binds them all together. It's interesting, in the Greek, it is of, they are partakers of the grace, not just of grace generically which suggests to us that Paul has in mind a particular grace. And the question is, what is the grace that they are partaking in? Is it the, the grace of salvation? Could be. Is it the grace of Paul's apostolic ministry of spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth? Perhaps. But I think what is most likely, based on what Paul continues to say in verse 7, and then what he's going to say later in verse 29, is the grace that Paul is talking about here is the grace of suffering for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Do you think of that as grace? That's what he says in verse 7. What does he say? 
You are partakers of, with me of the grace, what grace? Both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He's explaining what the grace is. Paul is suffering for the sake of the gospel and they are too. And in verse 30, Paul will say they are undergoing the same conflict that he is. Now we don't naturally think of suffering for the sake of the gospel as grace, do we? And yet... Is it not far better to struggle for a little while for the sake of the good news than to prosper for a little while by living for a lie that ends in destruction? You see, church, when we struggle for the sake of the gospel, we are partaking uh, in the grace of defending and confirming the good news. What is the defense of the gospel? The word in the Greek is apologetic. It's It's the word from which we get apologetics. And there are some in our church family that love apologetics, and I'm one of them, right? But you know what the number one apologetic for the gospel is? It's not all the questions and answers and defenses. The number one apologetic for the gospel is Christians who don't quit when it gets hard. Christians who don't quit when it gets hard. Centuries of Christians who didn't quit on Jesus when living for Jesus wasn't easy. That's a defense of the gospel. Paul in a Roman prison still having joy in writing to the Philippians. That's a defense of the gospel. Philippians facing growing hostility from Roman authorities reaching out to Paul to say, how do we go on? That's a defense of the gospel. When we face adversity and we don't give up on Jesus or on his church, it's a confirmation to the watching world that the gospel and our king are worth it. By contrast, casual, occasional, convenient, consumer Christianity doesn't confirm a thing. If it's just a party branded with Jesus, but marked by no sacrifice or gospel urgency, it won't shake up the world for the sake of our King. It will do no one any eternal good. But when we are joyfully selfless for the Savior who suffered and secured our salvation, the gospel is confirmed and defended. And in the Philippians, Paul has found a people who understand his struggle and he thanks God for them. And then in verse 8, Paul concludes the report of his prayers of thanksgiving by simply saying, God is my witness. You have any, any doubt? I don't know how to confirm, confirm it any more than this. God knows my heart. He knows how I yearn for all y'all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Times are tough in Philippi. Some relationships are strained. Paul will have some challenging things to say, and he wants them to know from the outset that everything he will say is rooted in a God-given yearning for them. He yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. He's saying that the love that Jesus has for them is working in him for them as well. This word affection is a fascinating word, and I promise we're almost there. The word affection in the Greek is the word literally for intestines or guts. Jesus, when he sees the crowds, the multitudes who are hungry, and before he feeds them, Matthew tells us on two occasions that he was moved in his guts for them. It's a word that signifies a visceral, compassionate response. It's a, it's a love and an affection that, that is not just cerebral. It, it moves you. And Paul says, I am moved for you by the way Christ is moved for you. 
Christ moving on your behalf to see you endure, to see you make it. That's working in me for you. And it is that that motivates everything else I'm going to say. So you can trust it. Because it's not natural. It's not human emotion. It is Jesus' love pouring out in me, in this letter, for you. Paul feels for the Philippians the way Jesus feels for them, despite the challenges on the horizon, and he thanks God for them. And I want to close this morning, church, as our worship team begins to make their way forward and just, just ask us some questions. What if we thank God for one another in this way? How would your life change? How would your praying change if, if you began with thankfulness? What if we lived in joyous desperation for communion with Christ and His people? What if we took partnership with the church seriously? What might God do for our joy? What if we stepped into gospel partnership in this way and said, where can I pour myself out so that Christ might be lifted up? And then finally, what if we risk the vulnerability required to love in this way? You know, it's hard to love like this because you might get hurt. Christ got hurt. But I'm telling you, there's no joy like pouring yourself out for the good of other people, the good of your church, and the glory of Christ. And so as we close, I just want to pray that God would help us to be a thankful and joyful people, sacrificially engaged in Christ-exalting partnerships that move us to God-given affection for one another and steadfast endurance for the gospel, no matter the cost. Would you bow with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction and guidance and help that we have from Paul this morning. And Lord, we pray that we would not just hear another sermon, but God, for those fighting a battle and fighting for joy, that you would identify for them how they could again walk in fresh joy in Christ. God, Maybe they would even come and spend time with you here as we sing. God, for those who need a church family to f exercise their full partnership in the gospel, we pray that if this would be their church home, that they would come and say today, I want to be a partner in the mission through North Roanoke Baptist Church. And God, for those who don't have this joy at all because they don't know you, God, may today be their first day. So that from the first day until you come or you call them home, they would be full partners in this glorious work of the gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.